This is the Education Gadfly Show. 70 years later, the World War II comfort women controversy still rages in California. This is the Education Gadfly Show. What does Gadfly say? In Washington, D.C., I'm Mike Petrilli. It's Wednesday, February 10th, and I'm delighted to be with you today. Those of us at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute have long been interested in issues around academic standards, including those for U.S. and world history. Uh, We're also very interested in textbook adoption, a process that we have at times criticized for being overly politicized. Uh, There's a new story out of California that gets directly into this issue, and Fordham's Kevin Mankin is here to tell us about it. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. So, Kevin, uh, you've got a dispute going on out there about, uh, is it uh, Korean comfort women? Yeah, that's right, Mike. <laughs> so uh, tell us more. Yeah, uh, this this is sort of the, the conversation I was hoping to be having on a Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, the release of a new framework uh, by what's being called the, the, the California History Social Science Project, which mm-hmm. is a committee that's sort of been meeting for a couple of years to determine a framework for how uh, history and social sciences will be taught in California, especially in California high schools. They released in December this great big framework uh, guiding how curricula and textbooks are going to be mm-hmm. formed from now on. And the crux of this story, which was published in the LA Times last week, is the inclusion of a small segment on sexual slavery during World War II mm-hmm. practiced by the Japanese Empire, specifically in Korea, although Audrey is telling us it has happened in a few other places. And and this is obviously a very painful part of history, uh, but something that Koreans and Korean Americans feel like should be taught in school. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the process of shaping this framework was influenced by advocacy groups of uh, different communities, and Korean Americans were just one. So uh, Korean Americans are pleased uh, that this aspect, this ugly aspect, as you point out, of history mm-hmm. has now come to the fore. However, Japanese American families and parents have voiced their objections. They see the story as being a little more complex than is than would be taught under the framework. And, and more or less, it also makes Japanese uh, not look very good. Uh, this kind of thing seems to happen all the time. And we certainly hear about this internationally. You hear about uh, in, in countries where they have a national education ministry that adopts textbooks. Uh, people look to see how uh, history is spun, whether they are honest about the blemishes in their history and the, the things that they have done. And, and other countries get angry if they, uh, if they see that their uh, former or maybe even current rivals are are spinning history one way or another. But now this has come to our shores. Yeah, as it happens, uh, this already involves another government. So, so the this this story sort of went over like a lead balloon in December. Not a lot of people paid attention. Uh, it is sort of a wonky topic until it looks like a conservative newspaper in Japan called Senkei huh. uh, picked up the story. They, uh, they're they pretty hard right. Um, they push on the conservative government there to, to, to halt with what have been official apologies over the last 25 years for the depredations of the Japanese Empire. And they have dubbed this a smear, a mm-hmm. slur on the on the honorable Japanese army. And they sort of brought international attention to this. So, Kevin, what do you think? Is there any way to avoid politicizing these kinds of debates? I mean, because it, it, it feels like right now it's just going to be another advocacy fight where these different, uh, these different groups of people are going to lobby to have things included or excluded based on, you know, what their, their own version version of history or what they think is going to be best for their own uh, their own self-interest. I mean, is there any way to bring this out of the realm of politics and just have 
have an approach that's sort of straight down the middle? No. Uh, short, <laughs> the, short, the short answer would be no. Um, this is, we've been talking about this for a couple of years. This is sort of uh, another iteration of the, the history wars, the textbook wars that you see constantly on simmering in uh, in Texas. Uh, this was happening in the AP U.S. history standards of, of 2014. People really latch on to these issues. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that need not necessarily be a negative thing. Um, people, it, the, the chair of the committee, Nancy McTeague, she mm-hmm. co-chaired the committee that formed the framework, basically puts a positive gloss on this. She says, uh, she was quoted in the LA Times saying, history is an interpretive discipline. Everyone's got their own interpretation. But that's not, a, and that, end quote, but that's that's not necessarily a cause for concern. I mean, if, if you have people uh, bring their their perspective on mm-hmm. history, it, 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 it could contribute be- beneficially instead. So the comfort women uh, passage is in or out? It is in for the nonce, um, but with enough political activism, who knows what could happen. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you, Mike. Fordham's Kevin Mankin. New York State recently changed its policy to no longer time their standardized tests. Students can now have as long as they like to take those tests. Here to talk about that decision is Fordham's own Robert Medicio. Hey, Mike. Hello, Robert. So people really freaked out when this decision was announced. Some of the newspapers seem to allege, right, that this was uh, some kind of lowering of standards. Oh, they're trying to make the test easier by not setting time limits. But once you dug into it, you weren't so sure. Right. I mean, did I mention I'm not a psychometrician, okay? I'm not a psychometrician. Um, But intuitively, this did not make sense to me. As soon as and look, to be frank, there have been uh, a history of lowering the bar in gamesmanship in New York, where I live. So uh, I come by my skepticism honestly. So when I heard that the state was taking time limits off of their tests, my initial reaction, like the New York Post, like even Moskowitz is frankly, mm-hmm. was, this is ridiculous. Why are they doing this? This feels like they're gaming the test to, to, to make the results look better than they are. But you're absolutely right. You, t- you, you look into it, you talk to psychometricians, and it turns out while there's not a rich data set on this, uh, the evidence that exists suggests that timed, uh, untimed tests uh, do not materially uh, differ in, in terms of results. And the best example of this, the MCAS, which mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, which is, which is an untimed test. So you're saying that what that most kids will do just as well on a on an untimed test as they do on a time test in the aggregate. In other words, if you give kids an extra amount of time, some will will uh, uncorrect uh, correct correct answers, and some will use their time wisely. But it comes out in the wash, basically. Okay. Except, by the way, for learning disabled kids, there is a good literature that suggests that for learning disabled kids, the extra time does in fact make a material difference. And look, that's why as teachers we give uh, additional time to, to kids with various disabilities. And, and my understanding, well, you, you dug into this and you found out that actually quite a few states already have untimed standardized tests. Well, Massachusetts is the obvious example, but then when you look at these so-called next generation computer adaptive yeah. tests like the SBAC, the Smarter Balance Test, those are untimed tests. Now, I, I suppose theoretically if if you let, if you let uh, a kid sit in front of a computer for a very, very long time, uh, eventually uh, you would, or, or sorry, if you put a time limit on that, the one kid who um, was was slower would would get fewer items done, so they yeah. would they would register a lower uh, a lower reading score, for example. Uh, but the way they're formatted right now, it just comes out in the wash. So let, let's talk about the politics of this. Why right. why now? Why, why is New York yeah, State doing this? That's where it gets interesting, right? Because it, that that was my initial question. If this if this is not about increasing the results, then what is it about? What do we know about New York, Mike? Well, they've got a big opt out movement. You go. So, How is this going to help? 
It's not. Uh, and that's what one of the, uh, the, the psychometricians I talked to, Professor Andrew Porter at Penn, uh, sort of, on the one hand, he was very emphatic that this uh, does not make a difference. And then I asked him, so you're saying uh, you're okay with this? And he said, absolutely not. It's like, what? <laughs> and, and his reason was, well, you know, first of all, we're moving towards um, uh, narrowing or, or limiting the time for testing, not making it more so. This, so this is, is, is counterintuitive. Uh, and he said, I, I just wouldn't do this because it's an administrative nightmare. M- meaning that, Right. I mean, there's all, the, the, one of the main complaints from parents, including these opt-outers, too is that much it time takes testing. too much so time. Take all the time you want, right? It, does, it doesn't make sense. That this actually would mean, mean more time testing. Yeah, but look, I mean, my, my point on this, and I think I'm right about this, uh, but this is just my, my judgment, uh, I don't think this is going to mollify the opt-out parents at all, because I don't think this is what they're upset about. They're not upset about the length of time testing. They're upset about the effects of testing on their kids' education. And mm-hmm. in, in that regard, frankly, I'm sympathetic. Uh, you can't be paying attention attention to what's going on in schools and not to be aware that uh, the testing tail is wagging the schooling dog, but that has nothing to do with the time. That has to do with the pressures that we put on teachers and kids to perform well on these tests. And unless you uh, have some relief from that pressure, there's a moratorium in New York where Mm -hmm. they're they're taking four years before they start to attach test results to teachers. Mm -hmm. But as I said in the piece, once that comes back, so will all the pressure. Okay. Well, they may have all the time in the world to take these tests, but we do not have all the time in the world for our show, so we will end there. You can check out Robert's piece on our blog, Flypaper. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you. The nation recently celebrated National School Choice Week, and it became clear to me, at least, that the most interesting debates are no longer waged between choice advocates and opponents, but within the choice movement itself. Uh, It's not unlike the raging family feuds within each of our political parties. These divisions are quite real, and they run deep. And that's because the movement's big tent now has factions in its various folds and corners that agree on parental choice, but not a whole lot else. Let me try to identify the three tribes of the school choice movement as I see them. First of all, number one, you've got the choice purists. These folks, who are mainly freedom-loving libertarians, strongly support two of the three principles that have long defined charter schooling, uh, parental choice, and also school-level autonomy. They're all for parent power, but they reject results-based accountability because they believe it conflicts with the will of parents and the right of schools to serve their customers as they think best. They also worry about those tests warping schools' approaches to curriculum. Not surprising, Surprisingly, they prefer the less regulated form of school choice, like education savings accounts and tax credit scholarship programs, but they also tend to be lukewarm on charters. While this clique is best represented in free market think tanks like Cato and also on Jay Green's blog, it is increasingly influential in our politics thanks to gains by the Tea Party. So again, number one choice purists. The second group is the choice nannies. This group supports parental choice and they're fine with accountability for results but they are only half-heartedly committed to school autonomy. Now, some of these people are simply bureaucrats. They're one-time district officials who now find themselves overseeing charter schools. And at the first sign of trouble, their inclinations are to micromanage, often calling that greater oversight. Uh, When they are screening charter applicants, they often look for the safe and trusted. But an interesting subset of nannies comes from within the choice movement itself. 
advocates who espouse parent power but also have strong opinions about practices that should or should not be allowed in schools of choice, especially when it comes to tough love approaches to school discipline. So that's the second group, choice nannies. The third group are the choice realists. Now, this group buys into all three principles that have long defined charter schooling, meaning parental choice, school level autonomy, and results-based accountability. Many of the folks in this group are also happy to apply these principles to vouchers and other publicly funded private school choice programs. They understand that there are trade-offs at play. When you close a fully enrolled charter school due to low performance, for example, you are violating parental preferences. But because education is a public good and not just a private one, they contend that such stern actions are not only justifiable, but necessary. Now, it should be clear by now that I belong to the tribe of choice realists. And uh, not surprisingly, I find the arguments of both other factions unconvincing. Let's start with the purists. Uh, I find their vision somewhat utopian, but I also worry that they have no good answer about what to do with providers that prey on low-income families, somewhat like payday lenders do. What do they do about low-performing schools that are squandering taxpayer Dollars. As for the nannies, I think that these folks underestimate the importance of cutting the Gordian knot that has inspired charter schooling in the first place. They don't seem to understand the key importance of cutting the red tape uh, and allowing real innovation to flourish. Is there anything to be done about these schisms in the school choice movement? Probably not. We're better off with a big tent than a pup tent, and that invariably means pulling in people with different ideologies and interests. As with any dysfunctional family, we have to live with one another, whether we want to or not. But if we can understand each other better, perhaps we can more effectively work together on common cause. David Griffith, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. David's here in, in Amber's place this week. She is a little busy with the assessment report that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So you are here to talk about what? Uh, the Research Minute, Mike. Uh, the 2015 Education Choice and Competition Index, uh, which was put together by Russ Whitehurst of the Brookings Institute. You know, we need to tell Russ. He needs to work on the title. Uh, he does need to work on it a little bit. It's got the word index in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but let's face it, Russ, Russ, pretty straight-laced guy. Although, if you get to know him, he actually has a, a very wry sense of humor. Uh, but yeah, we, Russ, work on the title. Uh, but what else do we think about it? Well, so we like it. Uh, and it obviously, it's similar to Fordham's own uh, Choice-Friendly Cities report. Um, what a great title that one was. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, with some key differences. Um, so, Brookings... Like the title. Uh, Brookings, yes. Brookings looks at the 100 largest districts, so not cities, uh, in the country uh, and ranks them based on how much school choice exists. Um, And, uh, you know, they focus on some similar things like um, the types of school choice, uh, choice friendly transportation, common applications. Um, But there's also some interesting differences just in terms of emphasis. Um, Brookings, uh, their metric is weighted a little bit more towards public choice. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, they have a very uh, heavy and interesting uh, focus on information. So of their uh, 13 indicators, five, by my count, have something to do with just sort of the availability and quality of information 
information, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. Well, it, you know, c- coming from a guy, R- Russ Whitehurst used to oversee the National Center on Education Statistics. Maybe this makes some sense. It may not be so surprising. Yeah. So, uh, so the big winner this year, uh, just to cut to the chase, uh, is Denver. Um, it didn't actually finish first. That is New Orleans again. Um, but Denver moved up several spots to second, making it the highest performing or highest ranked large district in the country. Um, and Brookings sort of holds up Denver as the real model for other districts. Not New Orleans. Well, they, the point he's trying to make is that, uh, you know, not every city is going to be hit by a hurricane. So, oh, uh, Look, I'm, I'm actually pleased because I've made this argument here at Fordham that, you know, hey, all hail New Orleans. But come on, that is not a national model. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, so Denver's a big winner. Um, and um, th- th- there's there's an interest, some interesting points in the report that sort of accompanies the rankings. Um, it focuses a lot on uh, open enrollment um, and how to design these systems so that people are happier with them. Uh, and it really goes sort of all in on this notion that behavioral economics um, can sort of resolve the tension between uh, sort of what policymakers want to design in a perfect ivory tower to make a fair choice system mm-hmm. um, and the politics of choice um, and how people respond to that sort of thing. So, people, Can you say more about that behavioral economics? How does that manifest itself as a practical manner? Sure. So it's basically this idea that you can, you can gently nudge people without actually telling them what to do. So a good, a good example is um, Boston's open enrollment system. Essentially, uh, people can choose whatever school they want in Boston, but if you as a parent go to choose a school, uh, you will essentially be given a pre-populated list of eight or, eight or nine schools. Interesting. Yeah, that are presumably, I, I haven't looked into it too de- deeply, but presumably they're close close to your house okay. um, and they're reasonably high performing and yeah. so they're sort of, you know. So they're priming so, the pump a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they're priming the pump and then if you want to, you can opt out of that and you can see the full list of 100 schools uh, if yeah. you want to. And I think um, I think this makes a lot of sense. I agree. Um, and uh, I, I just think it can go a long way towards sort of helping people mm, get used to the idea of Make more informed choice sure, yeah. or better choices. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and not freak out. Good. I like it. Well, I, I am curious, David, what are some of the things that we went into? You worked very much on, on our report, our, our sure. choice report. What what are some of the indicators we went into that they did not? Um, sure. So we, we, I think, looked a lot more at uh, kind of the ecosystem and uh, organizationally. So uh, things like, um, you know, NGOs and um, funders. Uh, and, and we also, I think, to be t- perfectly frank, uh, Fordham may put more of an emphasis on charter schools mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of what they need, the supports they need to really be a part of the public choice landscape. Um, so, and, and we, I think what really distinguished our report was we had this survey um, that we gave to people uh, that really asked them about the politics of choice, which we thought was important. I mean, asked them how mayors and so forth. Right. Uh, Try to get some of the nuance that you can't get uh, just by looking at numerical indicators alone. Yeah, yeah. What about Washington, D.C.? Are they not one of the 100 largest districts? They are, actually. So they finished, uh, I think, fifth in Brookings huh. um, and second in ours. Yeah, so um, I think I think that's probably just down to, again, a little bit less emphasis on um, things like vouchers. Yeah, and, and more focus on charters. So, yeah, and, and uh, you know, look, the Denver point is is important because we found Denver to be in the top three. We basically said, look, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Denver, you know, we can have these interesting debates about which model we like better between the three, but those three are way ahead sure. of everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we have some agreement with that, with Brookings on that. I, the, I think actually the level of agreement is kind of striking. You know, if you looked at the headlines today, uh, the presidential race, you would think that Democrats and Republicans cannot agree on anything, <laughs> but right? Hey, look at this. But hey, yes, look, here we have a center 
left and a center right organization, essentially um, with different points of emphasis, but not a ton of disagreement about what's good for kids at the end of the day. Um, so very well said. We will end on that happy note. All right. All right. And, and next week we'll get back to partisan bickering. That concludes this episode of the Education Gadfly Show. Find us online at edexcellence.net and on Twitter at, at educationgadfly. I'm Mike Petrilli, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.